Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we bring you an hour of brilliance, fire, and humor from Dorothy Allison. Dorothy Allison grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, the first child of a 15-year-old mother who worked as a waitress. Now living in Northern California with her partner Alex and her son Wolf Michael, she describes herself as a feminist, a working-class storyteller, a Southern expatriate, a sometime poet, and a happily born-again Californian. Allison is the author of the poetry chapbook The Women Who Hate Me, the short story collection Trash, two novels, Bastard Out of Carolina and Cave Dweller, and the memoir Two or Three Things I Know For Sure. On July 25th, 2019, Allison gave the keynote address at the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Heinemann Settlement School in Knott County, Kentucky. We'll hear Kentucky writer Silas House introduce her. I must have been seven or eight years old the first time someone called me trash. I was playing in the yard with my cousins in front of my aunt's trailer, which sat very near a busy highway. A car zoomed by, I'm thinking that it had out-of-state plates, but I can't be sure, and a man leaned out the window and hollered to tell us we were trailer trash. Two little gut-riching words that I have never forgotten. A couple of years ago, I was at a dinner party, a literary gathering with a bunch of writers, and the best known and the most powerful writer in the room used that same phrase to describe someone in a derogatory way. So I had to make the decision, or not, to stand up to this powerful literary figure and tell them how I felt about that word, that phrase. And I don't think I could have uh, mustered the courage to do that without the work of Dorothy Allison. She gave that to me. Because she was the first writer to really give complexity to the lives of those whom so many dismiss simply as trash. She writes them as faulted but loving, desperate but striving, uneducated sometimes but intelligent most of the time. She shows them as good and bad, just as there is good and bad in all classes, all places. She gives us characters that live and breathe whether we love them to our bones or hate them to our bones. I first read her not long after her debut novel, Bastard Out of Carolina, came out when I was 20 years old in 1992. That book was a finalist for the National Book Award and is now widely known as a contemporary classic. It marked one of the very few times that reviewers in the major literary gatekeepers had to admit that a writer from a lower class background possessed genius. It was undeniable. Those who guard the bastions of our literary world and snobbishly often decide who can get in or not, so often because of this connection or that or legacy or that, they had no choice but to let Dorothy in because she didn't knock, she kicked down the down door. <laughs> Before Bastard, there was her groundbreaking short story collection called Trash, published in 88. She is also the author of the poetry collection The Women Who Hate Me in 1991. Her second novel, Cave Dweller, 1998, was the New York Times' notable book of the year. Her essay collection Skin, talking about sex, class, and literature, came out in 94. And the must-read, very small but powerful memoir, uh, two or three things I know for sure was published in 95. She has said that she ate to break the world open with what I had to say on the page, and she has. She's also said that she has written stories to, quote, talk about how deeply intertwined love and resentment can be in a family in which violence and sexual abuse are the norm. She wrote about the things that we have been told, especially in the South, to keep to ourselves. In the process, she has helped countless people who read her words and gained their own voices. Some of them were able to talk about the violence committed against them. 
Some were able to explore issues with their mothers or the fathers. Some, like me, were able to look more honestly at their own orientation. Some, like me, were able to see their own people on the page for the first time. Quote, I did not want to be ashamed of my family, my sexuality, or myself, she wrote in Stubborn Girls and Mean Stories, the introduction for Trash. For so many of us, Dorothy Allison allowed us to give up that shame too. She wrote that out of herself by writing her novels and stories and essays and poems. We read it out of ourselves by reading them. Dorothy was born and raised in Greenville, South Carolina, and for many years now she's lived in Northern California with her family. She's a tireless supporter and encourager of other writers. Ever since I met her, she has shown me nothing but kindness and support, and many, many other writers will tell you the same thing. My favorite bit of writing advice comes from her, and I give it to all of my writing students. She says, I want hard stories. I demand them from myself. Hard stories are worth the difficulty. It seems to me the only way I have forgiven anything, understood anything, is through that process of opening up to my own terror and pain and re-examining it, recreating it in the story and making it something different, making it meaningful, even if the meaning is only in the act of the telling. Her hard stories have provided a great balm for so many of us. She didn't just kick down that door. She kicked it down and then she put her hands on her hips and she said, I am here. I am a woman, I was raised low class, I have an accent. I'm here and I'm queer and I'd love to see you by God run me off. <laughs> to you, Dorothy. Um, you're more than a writer for us. You are a fighter and an inspiration and a hero. So thank you. Welcome. Okay, so um, I know it's ridiculous. I know, but I'm fam. And I'm having a limp hair day. <laughs> Surely there are people in the audience who can identify with this. <laughs> and if I start to work, it's all going to fall in my face. So here we go. This is my Hillary hat band. <laughs> I only wear this in tribute to her. There's not an issue with my hire. <laughs> you know, the baby writers. And you're all baby writers. I'm, I'm 70. I do not know how that happened. I was busy. <laughs> but your babies, some of you are my babies. You are what I need. You are what I have needed. The work you do, the stories you tell, open the world for me. It's what we give each other. It's what we give each other. Okay, quick. Who here has heard me read before? Hands higher, I'm old and blind. <laughs> All right, so warn the others. <laughs> because I only know one way to do things. You are in trouble. <laughs> I have to wake my voice up, and we don't do that. I teach performance, let's be clear. I have often taught performance. I have to teach a whole lot less. I have arthritis. When I go to these wonderful readings, and I'm just weeping with glory, but can't clap because it hurts too much. So I, I was raised part Cherokee, you know. But I have taught performance, and part of the glory of performance is learning what you can do with your voice. Now you, children, have the marvelous blessing of being raised in a region that actually makes use of its voice. 
quite frequently without knowing what it's doing. <laughs> Your responsibility as a writer is to train that voice, to strengthen it, to resonate, to build language. Language, children, as a weapon. This is the opening to two or three things I know for sure. Let me tell you a story. I used to whisper that to my sisters, hiding with them behind the red dirt bean hills, row on row of strawberries. My sisters' faces were thin and sharp, with high cheekbones, restless eyes, like my mama's face, my Aunt Dot's, my own peasants. That's what we always have been. Call us the lower orders, the great unwashed, the working class, the poor, proletariat, trash, low-life scum. <laughs> oh, I can make a story out of it, out of us. Make it pretty or sad, laughable or haunting. Dress it up with legend, aura, romance. Oh, honey, let me tell you a story. That's how I'd start. Starting another one. When I was small, I could catch my sisters the way they caught butterflies, capture their attention, almost, almost, almost make them believe, make them believe everything I said was true. Let me, let me tell you about the women who ran away. All those legendary women who ran away. And I'd start the one about the witch queens who put their enemies in great open pots the jewels that grow behind the tongues of water moccasins. After a while, the deepest satisfaction was the story itself, greater even than the terror in my sister's faces, the laughter, and God help me the hope. God help me the hope. God help me the hope. God help us all. Your voice. For a few years there, because I'm cheap and can be had, I used to go and teach at the Maui Writers Conference. Now, who's going to turn down an invitation to Maui? The first time I went to Maui, they had this guy speaking. He was the editor of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. <laughs> greatest con game ever pulled in literature. <laughs> That son of a bitch did an introductory lecture for the baby writers. His idea of how to encourage them was to have a slideshow of his estate. <laughs> and I was sitting in the audience and I started shaking. And my friend Jewel said, don't do it. <laughs> I, was, I was catching fire and I wrote me a poem. Nah, I was invited up right after him. <laughs> I staggered my way up there and I put my hands on my hip and I read Red Eye Gravy for the writer's soul. Is this it? <laughs> Black coffee and misery, Jack Daniels and lust and oh, honey, hard work. The specific stink of sweat. Fever smells different than lust, more metallic, more bitter, cold, not heated, or if heated, sour. Black coffee and grease makes red eye gravy, and me, me, honey, I want to slide through. Loved on by language, smooth. Ha! Only roughens when it wants you to pause, to hesitate. Feel that grip between your teeth. Lust you say, lust you say, black coffee, black coffee and grease. What if, what if, black coffee and grease and a man that can tell a lie. <laughs> Given the invitation to take small revenge, <laughs> it takes small revenge. <laughs> were doing when you asked me to come. I, <laughs> I have been known to cuss. I did make a child. I tried to restrain it for a few years. 
My girlfriend did that stupid thing where you put a jar in the kitchen. <laughs> Every time you use a bad word, we're going to put a quarter in here. And I thought, well, then we'll pay the mortgage real. <laughs> I do go to colleges and I try to clean it up a little bit, but it don't make no difference. My efforts are so, so unsuccessful, you know this. I actually believe that cussing is a good exercise for training the voice. The thing that makes us writers, well, let's be real. I begin with revenge because, because that Jack Canfield pissed me off and revenge worked for me, but also because I believe that, in fact, many of us come to the page with a deep-seated need for revenge. I know, I know, in the world of glory, in the world of the Baptist Church, we would only go to the page for justice. Well, maybe not. No, I, I haven't been to the Baptist Church in a long time. Maybe they're not talking about justice as much anymore, but <laughs> it did seem to me that, especially when I was young, you went to the page not just for revenge and retribution, but for righteousness, to correct the record, to make real everything you knew. Sometimes to examine your own soul, pour it onto the page. That can be hard. That can be painful. We come out of a region about which there is such a mythology, so many stories. I swear to God. I go to writers' events and all them poor Yankees will come up to me and say, you're so lucky you grew up in a region of storytellers. I'm like, I grew up in a region of liars. <laughs> okay, all right, it's very close. <laughs> very close. I grew up in a region of manners. Very close. <laughs> but you know, Think about the first thing you ever put pen to page. Think about the first bad poem you ever wrote. Were you not angry? Were you not hurting? Did you not go to the page for some kind of balance in the world? I think some of the earliest poetry I ever wrote was me angry at my mama. I was so mad at her. I got older, I figured out it was safer to be mad at her than at the other people around me. She was the one person I knew absolutely loved me and probably wouldn't slap me or kick me or endanger my life. Being loved, being loved, gives us a safe place to stand in the world. The world of story for me is that world of being loved, of being wanted. Even when, like a wayward child, I would scream and shout, pour blood on the page, be as mean and nasty and hateful as I can be, and God knows I got some talent in that direction. But I can do it because on the page, on the page I am loved in the same way my mama loved me. On the page, I am joining the nation I believe in, the people that did, in fact, save me over and over and over again. I was a smart girl in a family of women who had learned to be smart was to shut up. I was a smart girl in a family where no one before me had ever graduated from high school total of five had ever gotten out of junior high. I looked them up, hunted them down. I was a sport in a nation of dogs. Do you know what I'm talking about? I felt myself an alien, a dream that in fact, very likely what had happened is that I had been dropped into my mama's lap by aliens. I was a black-headed in a family of towheads. It darkened, it lightened, eventually it went to brown, and it was pitiful. I'd lost all claim on my great-grandfather who was full-blooded Cherokee. I was just sad about it. But 
I couldn't dye my hair red, I tried, it went green. <laughs> family. My family that I loved despite them, in spite of them. Who loved me in spite of me, and I was a hard kid to love. My family was one family, the other family, the family I discovered when I learned to read. I learned to read at four. My mama was so proud, she told everybody. She did permanent. You know what, if you're a working class woman in the South and you work waitress, you have other means of making money, and my mama hated ironing. Primary income producing work for working class women in trailer parks and lower class enclaves is ironing other people's laundry. God save me, she wasn't gonna do that. But she could do permanence, home permanence. I don't know if people do that no more, but my mama was real good at it. So people would come in on the weekend when she wasn't at work and she'd do home permanence and she'd spread newspapers all over the floor. I'd be down on the floor. I was reading. And the women that she'd be doing the permanent, that little girl, look at her, she's pretending to read. My girl can read. Oh, my girl can read. Dorothy, read that, that woman that thing. I'd read that woman that thing. <laughs> Think of the glory, the gift I was giving my mama, the small revenge that even though she was sitting up in her kitchen working for them on a Saturday morning, her daughter was smarter than theirs was. <laughs> glory, love. And in the books themselves, love. In the books themselves, story story in which the world made sense, justice happened, love. I started writing bad poetry. Let me just say that when I teach, one of the ways I teach is that I teach young baby writers to write bad poetry. All great literature begins in bad poetry. <laughs> Give yourself permission to play with your voice and to use bad language and to use language let me, let me, let me tell you a story. Now, can you leave the room when I start like that? <laughs> no. <laughs> if you would, I might come after you. <laughs> the world of books was a world I ran away to. Between the ages of four and 16, I was never without a book. Most often with several, you might finish one. Had to have a backup. Better to keep a book in hand than to be caught without it. My stepfather used to run me out of the house. What you in your head in the books all the time? Who do you think you are? Grab a book, get the out of the house. Step into the world of love. Step into James Baldwin. Step into Flannery O'Connor. Step into John Steinbeck. Step in, step in. Be in a place where even when it didn't make sense, it made sense. Story. You know what I'm talking about. You know about love. To fall in love with the printed page, to fall in love with poetry, to memorize poems, recite them to your mama. Oh. Many of you come out of the same background I come out of. That's how it's called trailer trash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chitters, ringworm, diarrhea, rickets, lose your teeth at 12, fall so often, your knees are full of scars, elbows full of scars, torn earlobes. Yeah. You come out of the world I come out of. Your mama works a two, eight hour shift every other week just to make the money enough to keep the house. Never keep the house. Move every four or five months. Every four or five months a new school. Keep reading, keep reading, bury your head in the book. You come out of the world I come out of. Pontiac convertibles, Chevys, old trucks, dogs, dogs in the yard chickens, blackberries, 
peaches falling in the back. Jack, Jack, Jack Daniels on the kitchen table. Jack lemons in the window. And all them bees on the fallen peaches sting you, hurt you. In the books, there are no bad, stingy bugs. In the books, ain't no pyrrhea. In the books, everybody keeps their teeth. In the books, their mamas stroke their hair. Fine, fine, blonde hair. F*** that. You grow up reading those books. You think yourself an animal. And they want you to think yourself an animal. I got to tell you, driving across Kentucky, looking at this landscape so gorgeous, so beautiful, these huge swaths cut out of it. You know that there is an us and them. There is a they that not only doesn't care about us, that actively seeks to chew our bones for their meals. Maybe you don't have the anger I have. I'm 70, I got arthritis, what the f did I do? You put Mitch McConnell in front of me, I'll show you. <laughs> I should just tell you, somebody's missing a bit. They're letting me get on an airplane with a cane. <laughs> They're worried about a man with a gun. They should take a good look at a 70-year-old with attitude in the cave. Don't with us. We got very little left to lose. We have meaning, we have purpose, and we have love, which is, of course, the essential thing. The essential thing. Because why write? Why write? Why make story? I don't often talk about writing. I talk about making story because this is an active, creative venture in which you literally shape a world out of your own imagination. You make story. Okay, okay, okay. We lie. We steal our families. We steal our own history. We steal our own landscape. We make over our own region. We make over the songs on the radio. We actually actively engage with everything anybody else has ever told us, every story we have ever read, and we recreate it in our minds, filter it, and then with shrieking fingers, we make it on the page. Shake it. Send it out in the world like the blunt end of my cane striking back or the soft edge of my fingers stroking soft, making story. Making story is about making real. Listening to the stories this afternoon, sitting back there, almost weeping with joy that another generation is making story in such smooth and glorious, razor sharp, edges coming in, making the world real. They don't know. The world don't know. Let me be just clear with you. It isn't as if every other person's reading a book. You know this. Reading is actually a challenged enterprise. I got a 26-year-old, almost 27-year-old son who until he was 17 never was without a book in his hand and since 17 has never been without a device in his hand. So he's always reading, but books are not what he's reading anymore. So it's becoming harder and harder to make story and reach the world with story. And that terrifies me. Because if I have to base my life on television and movies, Well, for one thing, they wouldn't have any material because they, when they do not rent from us our narratives, steal from us our narratives so frequently and debase them and make small-minded versions of them. What I can do on the page and what I heard you do on the page this afternoon is that I can raise up in your mind the smoky, shadowy essence of scary people that you will nonetheless love. And that changes people.
That can change the world. Be careful of us. All right, all right. When I was in high school, people were very careful of me because I learned about limericks. <laughs> Let me just say the debased form of the limerick got me through high school. I could take your name, play with your name, make it funny, sing it in the hall, and you people will be singing it back to you for the next decade. <laughs> now that is power. That's revenge, glory, but also every once in a while, I could make a poem out of you, write it in a notebook, slip the sheet across the desk, slide it onto your desk, You'd read it and pink up. And for one moment feel loved, a gift. This is what we do with story. This is what we do with books. This is what we do to change the world. We make ourselves, those we love, those who are vital to us, real to people who don't believe in us. Well, there's more to her than power. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're listening in on Dorothy Allison's keynote address at the 2019 Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Heinemann Settlement School in Knott County, Kentucky. Allison describes herself as a feminist, working-class, lesbian writer, and this keynote was recorded on July 25th, 2019. I believe, absolutely, that most of us, and I'm sorry to say this, begin with revenge. Most of us have been hurt just enough that a lot of us, the earliest stuff we write is a story to correct the record. You know what I'm talking about? I did not, I did not go in her purse. I did not, I did not take those four quarters and a dime. I did not, I did not. And she just always says that kind of thing about me. So I write me a story about a poor girl whose mama's always accusing her of going in her purse. And the poor girl loves her mama so much. Almost always the poor little girl died because, you know, that was the way to really f*** up the mama. <laughs> but you know, when you're a little girl, it's kind of wonderful to f*** up your mama. <laughs> Or, you know, somebody said something nasty to you. Well, you could write a limerick. I'm sure there is a play on the word Jack that I could come up with something nasty, but, you know, maybe I'll write a story, a story in which the poor girl looks at you and sees the most hidden secret thing in your soul and knows it. And maybe she don't tell anyone, but she says just enough that you know she knows. It's a good story, especially since I could look at these children and see things they did not seem to realize that they were showing plain to the world. Yeah, sure, you got that bruise on your cheek from falling down. I've seen your daddy. I know things. You don't even have to be that smart. Let's be clear. I have days when I'm dumb stupid, but I can watch a woman in the grocery store with her kid in the basket in front of her I can see her paws in front of the soap sales, and I can see her looking at the big thing on big sale and the little thing, it's overpriced, and she's figuring it. You can see in her eyes, she's trying to figure out what she can afford to spend money on this week, and she's making those hard, cold calculations. And I look at her, and I know things about her. I can put her in a story. I can put her in a story in which it is her courage her wisdom and her determination keeps her family fed and in clean clothes. I can go in the post office and watch two boys shoving each other up against the locker, see them hitting against those little glass boxes with the things that stick out 
One of them shoves one boy so hard that his face hits the glass and cuts. And he's screaming. And I see the other boy pull away. And I can see in an instant that they love each other. With plain on their faces. So then I have to write a delicate story in which that love is plain, but write it in so that they will not be humiliated or endangered. This is what we bring to the page. I say you don't have to be that smart, but you do have to watch. You do have to craft. But at heart, children, you have to love. Well, let me tell you the really hard part. You have to love yourself. Like I said, I was raised in the Baptist church. There's something funky about being raised in the Baptist church. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of language about love in the Baptist church, and there is a lot of language about justice and righteousness. But there is a deep undercurrent of humiliation that runs through it. There is a deep, deep consciousness of Who's done better? Who's got a little extra? Who praised God more loudly this week? Who poured more money into the dish? And that always kind of messed with me, especially since I could never quite understand how come all the deacons were used car salesmen. <laughs> but then I would watch the plate go around and see how much money went into the plate. Now, if the Baptist church is teaching me love and understanding, and frankly, it did. It did. That was there. It did lead me to the Bible. It did lead me to hearing the Gospels read out loud. It did lead me to the hope of the peace that passeth understanding. How come, in the midst of that, it taught me such deep shame, such deep fear? All right, if I'm going to love myself, I'm going to have to forgive myself from walking away from the Baptist church. And I'm going to have to forgive the Baptist church for what it did not give me. It gets complicated. I mentored a young man who wrote a novel about a young preacher in a small town in the South. Now I figured out pretty fast that he was of the homosexual persuasion, I use that phrase deliberately, but that he was not going to say that he was of the homosexual persuasion, nor was he going to make it plain on the pages, but in every page of the manuscript it was evident to me that the young boy training to be a preacher was in mad love with the older preacher, and that the struggle nominally was to fund a new church, but the other struggle if it had gone the way it should have gone, would have ended with the two of them embracing at midnight, loving each other clearly, probably not having sex. They're Baptists, after all. <laughs> but then on some level, I really, really, really wanted him to grapple with the fact that there was desire there and fear. And when I tried to talk to him about it, there's this thing that happens where the pink goes up and the pink comes down and the white comes up and the white goes down. And he's like, you just think that because you're a lesbian. Well, I said, well, that does inform my observations. <laughs> and he was like, I'm not working with you no more. I walked away. Twelve years later, I met him in New Orleans with him and his boyfriend. <laughs> and I'm like, how'd that book come along? He said, oh, I put it aside. I wrote one about a gospel singer. <laughs> it had taken him all of those 12 years, though, to forgive himself. It has taken me my entire life to forgive myself for what I did to my mother that I published faster out of Carolina without first making sure she understood how much I loved her how much I loved her. And that I knew absolutely that she had saved my life over and over again. And that whatever the world might say to her, I knew 
that love was unending, purposeful, and that she could look at me and know things about me I didn't know she knew. On her deathbed, sitting there with her, holding her hands, she had cancer, she had it forever. She buried three doctors, 30 years. But it had come down to tumors in her brain and lights in her eyes. And every once in a while, a jerk and almost pull her hand out of mine. And she's like, her mouth is working and she's looking at me with terror. And I know either it's the fear of the death or it's that she needs me to say something. And I'm like, Mama, Mama, I have always loved you. You did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. I'm watching her eyes soften just a little bit. And then the terror come back. I should have talked to her more, but I couldn't. So I wrote a book. Thinking in my arrogance that that would be enough. I still have not written the book. It makes clear how complicated it is to love a man who would be violent with your children. How complicated it can be to persuade yourself that what you fear is happening is not happening. But I have the talent, I have the skill, I know I can look at myself, I can look at my sisters, I can remember her on her deathbed and know, know, absolutely, that story needs to be told. Write it for me. Write it for me. Some of you have committed sins. There's a wonderful poem by Judy Grant called A Woman Is Talking to Death. It's part of the poem she writes of forgiving herself for her sins of omission, the acts she has not performed, the interventions she did not stage, the forgiveness she did not act on. Those stories, those were lacking a little bit. I'll tell you the truth, if it wasn't for Ron Rash, I'd despair that anybody could ever grapple with that kind of thing. But I've seen him grapple with it in story. And I heard some of it this afternoon in the reading. I am a benighted, lesbian, feminist, ex-Baptist, briefly Mormon, inherently agnostic, troublemaker. <laughs> but I've also, for the last 50 years, been a feminist and a lesbian activist, which is kind of a way of saying, of being semi-obnoxious in public. <laughs> I have marched in the street. I have written broadsides. I have written letters to congressmen. I have gone in and tried to talk to preachers. I have been the visiting lesbian at Episcopalian and Presbyterian and I swear, if there's a church short of Amish, I have been there. I have been the visiting lesbian feminist for a day. This used to be a thing. I don't think it's so much of a thing anymore, but I did it for years and years and years. I did it for years and years, trying to make a difference. I used to go and talk at the detention, Children's Detention Center in Central Florida. Let me just tell you. It's an interesting experience to be a dyke in the children's detention center because let me tell you, they were not children. They were adolescent girls, some of them 17, 18 years old. I come walking in and the girls are going, woo, mama. And I'm like, excuse me. They took one look at me, they knew exactly who I was. I took one look at them and I'm like, oh God, I'm in trouble. They know who I am. And looking at them, I thought, well, what can I lose? I look at the guard and I think, well, they probably can throw me out of here pretty fast, but until then, we're going to be frank and honest and open and trusting. What's your girlfriend like? I have half a dozen. I'm non-monogamous. <laughs> what does that mean? I screw around a lot. Ah, girl! <laughs> What's 
saying you're a feminist. I believe in equal justice for women. You what? Justice. Yes, honey. You gonna be around when I get out of here. You're a little young for me, darling. You call me darling. Oh. I swear to God, I lost eight pounds in sweat. <laughs> and it was my first experience of what I have come to think of as a correction. A correction. In which God takes hold of me, the God I believe in. And she says, we're going to show you something here, girl, and you're going to pay attention. You're an ignorant this is often God's message to me. <laughs> Sometimes she wakes me up in the night just to say, How you doing, ignorant <laughs> What'd you screw up today? Oh, well, I The God I believe in, the God, the God that whispers Muriel Ruckheiser's poetry to me in the middle of the night. God that comforts me when I'm shaking and terrified and walking back and forth. And I've been walking back and forth a lot in the last couple of years. That God understands. Those girls in the children's detention center weren't wrong about me. I was arrogant. All the good intentions in the world are not going to save you on the page. All the good intentions in the world are not going to let you commit the sin of obliviousness. You are not allowed to treat anyone with that level of contempt, not even yourself. Yeah. I tell my baby writers that writing is going naked in public. Your readers will see into you things you have not admitted to yourself. They will know stuff you think you're hiding. As <laughs> if you ain't that good yet. Work a little harder, maybe you'll get a little better at it. But the reader, the reader is in you. The reader is listening. The reader hears your language and hears what you're not saying as well as what you're saying. And the reader knows what you're avoiding. But let's talk about glory just briefly. I never believed that I would ever make any money as a writer. For most of my life, that was true. I was a feminist writer. You know how much money you make as a feminist writer? Yes, you do. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Self-published, broadsides, little grants you get for working on a magazine that you then have to pour back into the magazine to get the next issue out. You know that You don't make no money. Or not enough money to survive. No, you don't write for money. And if you do, you're a damn fool. Put that on a bumper sticker. Dorothy says, if you write for money, you're a damn fool. If you write for justice, she'll love you forever, but you might not get it. No. But you know what you can write for? What you should write for? Glory. Glory. Your mama on the page. Your sister's as they want to be on the page. Your uncles, God, God, God. Broken-hearted, destroyed, stubborn, angry men on the page, still, still, somehow loving and loved, even in the midst of all the damage. Glory. Your cousins, Drug addicted, broke, wrecked, half their lives in jail, crazy with fear, none of them decently educated, none of them ever touched gently. But on the page, on the page, full of the spirit, full of the spirit and reaching for the best, glory, glory, glory. Glory, justice, meaning, purpose. I can scare hell out of you with what I want from you. But it is not far from what you want from yourself. You know, you know. Glory. Sometimes, sometimes writing in the middle of the night, 
writing and trying to get it right and doing the same paragraph over eight times in the ninth, the ninth paragraph. I can read it out loud. I'm standing up. I'm standing up off the keyboard. I'm pushing away the typewriter. I'm pushing away the long sheets of paper and I'm raving it in the air and I'm, my hands are going back and forth and all I can think is glory. God damn it finally works. Glory. Calling up a friend in the middle of the night. Let me read this to you. It's 3 a.m. <laughs> Shut up. This is glory. <laughs> Reading it into the phone and then she says, that ain't bad. <laughs> glory. Glory. Silas sends you a manuscript. You read it and you go, F glory. First child you ever worked with in a workshop sends you a manuscript of poems and, oh my God, they're not bad. Glory! <laughs> you win an award for a semi-decent story. They pay you $3,000. You get the next issue of conditions printed and on the street. The other editors look at you and they're all beaming. Glory. You can't make the rent, but the magazine's out. <laughs> Glory. That's what you write for. You will live forever. After the revolution. Any day now. <laughs> After the revolution, when the buildings have fallen over, the libraries are bricked up. The librarians are in there with machine guns protecting the books. <laughs> I'll tell you something about my dark tendencies in my imagination, but you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You want your book there. You want your broadside, you want your magazine, you want your scraps of poetry, your drafts of essays. You want that one piece where you finally, finally, genuinely apologize to your mama on the page. You want it there. I have ambition that you cannot imagine. I want to live forever, forever. When I was 24, I wanted to live forever in this body. Now I'm 70, and I hurt most of the time, and I can't walk right. Stuff's a little complicated. So I'm not so clinging to the notion of this body. Maybe I'm even ready for another incarnation. I'm, I'm somewhat about the possibility. Probably come back as a turnip anyway. <laughs> But it almost don't matter. I'm pretty sure some copies of my books will survive. I'm pretty sure that in the aftermath of whatever is going to happen in the next millennium, there will be books on DVD and CD or some medium is going to have us. There will be children reaching for story. And maybe, maybe they'll break into the bricked up libraries and there will actually be some surviving paper. But maybe there'll be media, whatever media means by that point. Maybe, maybe it will be like, I had a student who loved me profoundly because I told him he was not a writer. It was the greatest act of generosity I have ever performed. And he was oddly happy about that because it meant he could go away and be a musician. And he was thrilled. He sent me a CD on which he had somehow managed to crowd 700 performances of the Grand Ole Opry, some of which I actually wanted to listen to. <laughs> I didn't even know how you could, I didn't know you could fit that much music on one little thing. And I thought, wow, you could put all my books on this sucker. I could be in that library. I could be there forever. And considering that, from what I've been able to figure out, any number of young 
somewhat unwise people have typed in fully the manuscripts of my works and they're available online. You don't even have to pay for my books anymore. But it's a little bit like, um, you better pay for the food here. Or you might want to kick in some cash for the scholarship program or otherwise there won't be a high moon next year or the year after. And if you don't buy a book, there won't be me in your library or Silas or God, all of you, all of you. I am deeply critical of corporate capitalism. Yes. Deeply. I believe that it is unjust. I don't want to go too far into this or I will be have people stomping out and throwing books at me. Boots, usually boots. I've had a boot thrown at me. But let's be clear. Even at its best, corporate capitalism values property and things more than people. And I lean on the side of people. And I believe that story is necessary for the survival of people. And on some level, I don't care about the medium. I like books. I'm addicted to books. I was raised to get drunk on the smell of ink and paper, and a new book to me smells like glory. But I'll settle for audio. I'll settle for an online transmission. If I make it to 90, I intend to hold a giant party, play a whole bunch of Hazel Dickens and give away. <laughs> what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to understand. When you make on the page some piece of true, true, I mean that in the broadest sense, you tell a true story. You tell a story with meaning and purpose and glory in it. When you do that, you want the world to pick it up and read it. It would be nice if they helped you to pay your rent it would be nice if they helped you feed your children. It would be nice if they helped you educate your children and make this a safer world. But you want your story in the world. That is the desire. That is the need. That is the ache. That is the pull. I wish that for you. I wish that for us. Because I believe truly that the stories you're writing, the stories you're sharing, are the necessary bread of this poor, pitiful nation. And finally, language. Let's talk again. Language, language, language. You have had the glory of growing up in a region in which language is glory. We stretch our vowels. We pulse. We pulse our language. We know how to shout. We know how to whisper. We know how to tease. We know how. Use it. Use it. It is the finest weapon you will ever acquire. This one's called butter. I am my mama's daughter. Biscuits butter. Calf moon whaler. Textile honey. Low life. Low life. Your work, your work, it's, I like your work, it's your person, it's your person. I just can't, I just can't go there. Can't tolerate that kind of stuff, that kind of pinch and wiggle, <laughs> wink and tickle. Mama's taste for honey and meat, biscuit butter, welling up in the crack, running down the thighs. The shame of it, girl, the shame of it. I come with all of it, all of it. I come with all of it, all my parts, sex, blood, and rage, and I know how to shout, honey and meat and butter, butter. Now you get the out of here and shout. <laughs>
If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org. Or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Music on this episode features Carla Gover with a tune called Don't Put Her Down, You Helped Put Her There. That song was recorded by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings on her record Hush My Restless Soul. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.